Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. I'm outraged for a Wednesday. I still cannot believe what they're doing at Berea City Hall. Wait till you hear more. It's This Week in the CLE, the weekday podcast from Cleveland.com that is all about the coronavirus. I'm Cleveland.com editor Chris Quinn with editors Laura Johnston, Chris Warnowski, and Jane Cahoon. Everyone ready for a little outrage? Of course. Always. Love it. Okay, let's begin then. What is Berea City Council President Jeff Detmer thinking? Does he think that the lives of council members are more precious than the lives of the residents they serve? This is just a stunner, Laura Johnston. The council president has set up a system for council meetings that fully protects the council members while, frankly, putting residents who want to attend the meetings into danger. So let's start with how the council meetings work now. So this is the third time that city council, the mayor and city administrators have participated in a public meeting from the safety of their homes or offices by using Zoom video conferencing. Only the council president is actually at City Hall to run the meeting. Okay, so far so good. We're all trying to stay clear of each other to slow the virus. So you salute the effort they're making to protect the the council members. But now for the outrage. One of our reporters, Beth Blady, asked if she could attend the meetings remotely, and the answer was astounding. Yeah, the craziest part of this is that the public and the media need to come to City Hall to get real-time access. Think about that. The council members get to stay home and be safe, but the puny members of the public and the press have to go and risk getting the coronavirus. What is this guy thinking? I have no idea. Neither does Beth. The council president apparently is very busy and didn't want to, quote, debate it with her. So Beth called a couple of experts on open meetings and good government. And what they said really doesn't surprise us. No. Uh, Dave Marburger, who's our go-to attorney on public sunshine laws, called this ludicrous. And Catherine Terser, who's a good government advocate, said it was a really bad idea to shut the public out from a virtual meeting. You know, I, I, we haven't really seen, or, or call, call me out if I'm wrong, we haven't really seen a lot of what you'd call bad behavior by public officials in this crisis. It's, it feels like people have seen the solid leadership of Mike DeWine, the nonpartisan uh, leadership that Chris Warnowski mentioned yesterday, and, and people have fought, largely followed suit. That, this one just blew my mind. It's like, how can you begin to defend what you're doing here? Yeah, it seems crazy, especially because our reporter had the ability to dial into the meeting just like anybody else. I don't know if they think they're going to like Zoom bomb it or what and get in the way, but they don't they can't um, send it out on the airwaves right now because Baldwin Wallace, which normally does it, is closed for the shutdown order. So there's no way for you to see what's going on unless you go to City Hall and sit and watch at the screen, which is just ridiculous. We did have as other other governments went this route because they're all trying to stay safe. And they went with online meetings and closed out the the public attendance, but but with opening it to people. We had reporters say, hey, you know, this seems like it violates the Sunshine Law because they're not really meeting together. And And as we talked about, it's like, you know, it's a crisis. So you have to really change your ways in the crisis. They're trying to be transparent while being safe. And so we didn't 
you know, we didn't pitch a fit. This is not that. This is putting the either putting the public into danger or shutting them out of the public's business. I hate to file a lawsuit in a crisis like this, but man, this guy has set the standard for bad behavior. We might have to. We'll see. It's this week in the CLE. Does a just-released coronavirus model by Metro Health predict a brighter future for Cuyahoga County in Ohio? Jane Cahoon, we've been talking largely about three other projections of late, one by the Cleveland Clinic predicting COVID-19 goes deep into summer, one by Ohio State that predicts a peak in late April, early May, and one by the University of Washington that the last time I looked said, we peaked today. The Metro Health projection is closer to that last one. What does it say? Well, it says that the outbreak will peak with roughly 2,500 new COVID-19 cases per day toward the end of April. And uh, the Cleveland Clinic and the Ohio State models have projected that they could see anywhere, you know, up to 10,000 new cases per day at the peak. So it's quite a difference. The timing of it, of the Metro Health model is similar to what Dr. Amy Acton, the state health director, is saying, but the severity in terms of the peak number of cases is is much less. What's interesting about this one is that it does not show that dreaded curve we've been talking about nonstop. It shows a whole bunch of, you know, peaks and valleys for months with no big rise. Right. It, it looks more like a, a jagged line than a curve over the next month, like like mountain ranges. That, and the peaks aren't intended to be exact estimates. Instead, they're supposed to be, they're supposed to illustrate like a cluster of cases, like an outbreak at a jail or, an, or a nursing home that, that could, you know, cause the, the peaks, the Metro, little peaks. <laughs> the Metro Health CEO, Akram Boutros, uh, had a long interview with uh, reporter Evan McDonald yesterday, and he's He's not saying that the the previous projections that were more dire were wrong. He's saying that what we can basically saying that no one's ever seen what Ohio has done before by doing the social distancing, by staying home in the numbers we have, that we've actually changed the future. Right. He he credits Ohio with imposing these aggressive social distancing measures, and he credits Ohioans with with obeying them. He he estimated they've reduced contact with others by as much as 95%, which is pretty astounding. He, he said this is a historic quarantine that we've never seen, and the people of Ohio have been unbelievable. Okay, so can we all go out and have a group hug? Are we soon done with this social <laughs> distancing nonsense? Hey, here's the thing. I, you know, I might have like a glass half empty view of this. But but one thing that Dr. Boutros said really stuck with me. He said, this is no longer a short, intense war. There's going to be a really difficult, sustained campaign. Um, so both he and Dr. Acton said, if we don't keep up this social distancing, hand washing, and the other measures we're taking, this could all go out the window and and we could see that big, sharp peak of cases. I did reach out to him, though, because in, in what they released, I didn't see it I, to say, OK, so with all you see, when do you believe we'll be able to relax some of the things that we've been doing? Um, I didn't get into the details of what it looks like. And his answer was that in early May, that that it could be the beginning of a return. Uh, I guess we're going to have to have a lot more conversation on what that means. I, you know, I'm still not going to a movie theater. I don't think you guys will. 
but might you go to a restaurant or or will they be allowed to open with space limitations or something? I expect we're going to hear a little bit about that at the wine with the wine briefing today. <laughs> this is Laura Johnston. I just want to know when my kids can go back to school. Please let them go back to school before, before the end of uh, the year. And please let summer camps be open. I'll bet no one ever votes against the school tax ever again. <laughs> well, I should say, if I could just say uh, that Metro Health projects that the virus is going to remain a threat until a vaccine is developed. And, you know, that could take a year or more. So this model does suggest Ohio could see some upticks at various points through the end of the year. That doesn't mean, you know, we're never going to be able to relax, but it's just, it's out there. Yeah, it's a conversation we're going to have to get into, I think, in the near future. What is, what does relaxing begin to look like? It's this week in the CLE. What is going on in Ohio's prisons when it comes to the coronavirus? The governor wants to release a whole bunch of people. The people in the state's only federal prison are smuggling out video of how bad things are and in the private prison, they can't social distance. Jen Cahoon and Chris Warnowski, it sounds like a big mess. Let's start with the governor. How many prisoners does he want to release early, Jane? He wants to release 167 more nonviolent offenders early, in addition to the 38 that he announced on Friday. The, the Friday group included a lot of women who were pregnant or recently gave birth in prison. This new group includes 141 minimum security inmates who are within 90 days of completing their sentences. And the other 26 are age 60 and older and have some sort of chronic health condition that makes them particularly vulnerable to the virus. Why, why isn't this just automatic? Can't he just commute the sentences of anybody he wants and send them out? No, he can't. There, there are some hoops he has to go through, and he's trying to get around some of that. There's normally a 60-day waiting period and a required hearing before the parole board. So he's asking judges and prosecutors who handled the cases to waive that waiting period so that the parole board can start taking these up on Friday. And then for the, the the 141 minimum security inmates who are close to finishing their sentences, their cases will be considered by something called the Correctional Institution Inspector, Inspection Committee. And apparently they have the authority under state law to recommend that the governor release inmates because of a prison overcrowding emergency. This is all a drop in the bucket, though, right? I mean, how many people are in state prisons as of now? 49,000. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so you're All right. right. All right, Chris, Corey Schaefer had a great story yesterday about the video smuggled out of the federal prison in Elkton. What did it show? We saw this video pop up uh, on social media. It came, uh, came through Instagram over the weekend, and it took a, a little bit of time to actually verify that it was real. Um, but uh, basically the video showed, and you can see it on the website, uh, um, a man in a mask talking about the conditions at the, the federal prison uh, here in Ohio. And, you know, he showed other inmates who were there. You can hear people coughing and you can just say, you know, he's saying things like, you know, they don't care about us and, you know, they're they're really not taking care of us in the way that they should be. And, you know, so it, it really did show some disturbing conditions in in the jail where you know they're not allowed to social distance where there's not a lot of space between the inmates and then we heard after we published the story um someone reached out to Corey, who said 
you know, uh, that's one of the guys in that video is my brother and I haven't heard from him since Saturday. So, you know, I, you know, I feel like there's, there's a lot of anxiety that is sort of starting to sort of trickle out, uh, from, from these jails and really from the families who are on the outside waiting to hear answers. You know, I, uh, they've relaxed some of the, the like video visitation requirement, you know, requirements and stuff like that. The prison but, told Corey that these people did not have the virus. Do no. you believe that? I mean, we know from DeWine that the medical team is only half staffed at the prison, which is why DeWine is putting the Ohio National Guard in there to treat people. It's sort of difficult to say. I mean, it, it's, it's, I mean, they're clearly running with limited resources there. So, you know, I mean, my guess is they're, they're not testing everybody in the jail and they're probably just quarantining people who might be symptomatic and in probably just giving tests to people who who are really really showing that that the symptoms of the of the illness all right then there's the private prison uh reporter eric heisick spent time talking to a whole bunch of inmates there and it sounds like conditions are not good yeah so it's it's a similar story there core civic which owns the uh, private jail that's located near Youngstown. Um, CoreCivic has been sort of a, a controversial national sort of player in the private prison game for a very, very long time. And, you know, they've, they've been at the forefront of, of helping the government detain immigrants. And in, in this situation, he talked to a number of inmates who were complaining about a lot of the similar things that we heard about the other federal prison, which is there's really no social distancing going on that not much has changed since this came out. And, you know, of course the, the company says not much and, you know, and they sort of give the, the niceties and the politeness that, you know, we're doing what we can or whatever, but it's, it just seems like a, you know, a population that I, you know, it's nice to hear the governor and, and prosecutors and people, you know, talk about this from a humane perspective, because most of the time it, that's not the case. Well, are the people in the private prison convicted of anything? You know, what's their status? And what does the U.S. attorney in Cleveland say about the situation there? He's the one that puts people into that prison, right? So in if you remember DeWine talking uh, the other day about sending the National Guard into the private prison here to talk, he, you know, he said he was going to he, he was asking that the U.S. attorney's office not send any new people to the jail. And and honestly, her, Justin Herdman, who is our U.S. attorney, has not really said much about this at all. And I'm sorry, what, what was your other question? Well, I just are they convi- are are they awaiting? They're, oh, no, they're, these are the yeah. So that's they're the jail the, the the what they're doing. The U.S. Marshals uses that that facility as a place for people who have been picked up or are waiting trial, awaiting sentencing, and stuff. So, you know these. You know, the, the difference between the state and the federal court is that the federal court, if, you, if you're if, if it's a crime, it's usually a, a much more serious crime. So, you know, the feds don't get involved in, you know, a lot of the stuff that happens in county courts and state courts. So, okay. so you know, they, they're, they're accused of some serious stuff. Then it's yeah. just they haven't been convicted. Right. But All right. They're still yeah. people. Yeah, I know a lot of people don't have sympathy for the people in prison. I heard from quite a few yesterday. I was a bit surprised, but I imagine it's pretty frightening to be cooped up in tight quarters with a virus like this that can kill you. And and for the people that I heard from, everyone in prison is a ward of ours. We owe it to them to take care of them. You're listening this week in the CLE. Can I please get some booze with my takeout order during the coronavirus crisis in Ohio? 
Jane Cahoon, Governor Mike DeWine answered that question Wednesday with an emphatic yes. What's at play here? Well, he said the Ohio Liquor Control Commission has approved an emergency rule that allows any Ohio restaurant that has a liquor permit to sell limited quantities of hard liquor and cocktails for takeout um, or delivery. The problem, of course, is that restaurants are closed except for takeout and delivery. And anyone who knows the restaurant industry knows a lot of their money comes from alcohol sales. Is this really just trying to, DeWine, trying to help them survive through this crisis until they can reopen and and start serving people again? Yes, it definitely is. The the governor said that the restaurants had requested this and he he thought it seemed like a reasonable accommodation. All right. So this is going to be naive, Chris. How does this work? I mean, do they mix your drink and put it in a sippy cup? Do they put the ice in it so that it melts on your way home? Do you put the ice in it yourself when you get home? How, How does it it's not like a bottle of beer, right? So how do they package this? Do you have any idea? Anybody? Oh, Chris, if I had known, I would have procured a sample here for the podcast so I could demonstrate it. But basically, you 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 can't get any more than two drinks per order, and they have to be sealed in some sort of way, and you're not allowed to open them until you get home. This is Laura Johnston. I cannot wait for the concoctions that are going to be called, you know, wine with the wine and the, you know, Amy um, Acton. Apple teeny. I want to know if I get a margarita go, how are they going to keep that salt on the rim? Because I, that's my big thing about the margaritas. We'll get, we'll call them quarantinis. Oh, there you go. (laughs) That's why I'm here. Um, All right, Christopher (laughs) Nasky. Well, my question is, and maybe, you know, this is a little, you know, too future looking, but maybe, just maybe, this state can relax its laws permanently and make this a permanent fixture of restaurants. And, uh, and, and you know, maybe this is one of those things where when we come out the other end of it, we'll take a look at our sort of ancient and draconian liquor laws and, and revisit them and, and maybe have a brighter future as a result. I know. Boozy so, wait, 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 Chris. Be a takeout thing. Where, 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 where are you sitting, Chris? Are you sitting like with rainbows and unicorns <laughs> dancing around? Oh, I gotta stop doing cartwheels. Like, <laughs> I want to see that. All right, it's this week in the CLE. Does Ohio have to raid its rainy day fund because of the coronavirus? Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder predicted this week that the state will be two billion dollars in the hole when its budget year ends. Taxes have dropped off the charts. Jane Cahoon, he has a couple of ideas for bailing us out. Well, he says he thinks that lawmakers are going to have to tap into that $2.7 billion rainy day fund. And I guess that's why it's officially named the Budget Stabilization Fund, because it would be needed to stabilize the budget. He also predicts they're going to have to consider borrowing money for public works projects he sees this as a um, a way to jumpstart the economy and, and quickly get people back to work after the crisis. I should remind everyone that while John Kasich gets credit for filling up that rainy day fund, he did it by stealing all the money from the local government fund. We've all <laughs> seen massive local tax increases to cover that lost money that Kasich took away. So basically, I would argue the municipalities have made Ohio ready for this crisis. Governor Mike DeWine tried to cover the bleeding in the budget with cuts to spending. How's that going? Well, he imposed a hiring freeze and directed agencies that aren't responding directly to the coronavirus to make 20% cuts. But householders said that's that's not going to come close to, to closing this gap. 
Of course, no one knows what the recovery looks like, right? If it's if we're slow, then the state might have issues in the next budget year. And if the rainy day fund is down to seven hundred million, that won't do the trick. What what do you think will happen? Well, I think that's the great unknown. We're just gonna have we're just gonna have to see what kind of rebound we have after this. Okay. You're listening for this week in the CLE. Is RTA using unproven technology to battle the coronavirus on buses and trains? Laura Johnston, this is an easy one. The answer is yes. Correct. The RTA even acknowledged it. They spent $36,000 on something called a Moonbeam 3, which sounds like a spaceship or something, but it uses three arms of UV light to disinfect surfaces. And the spokeswoman even said, quote, most signs are pointing to its effectiveness. It took a while to get an answer on this after after we had the story a week ago about them using this technology. But this isn't complete foolishness, right? This form of UV light has a track record on coronaviruses. It's just not tested on this coronavirus. Correct. And there are some area groups that use it. Southwest General Hospital, so does Middleburg Heights for its ambulances. It has been shown to kill some diseases, uh, make them safe for people. But you know, the coronavirus is so new, they say the company says they want to test it as soon as they can get a live strain. But, you know, no one's really in a hurry to do that. And I now know more about different UV lights than I would want to, courtesy of Chris Warnowski finding a great story that laid it all out. But what I what you learned from those stories is this is a really dangerous form if your skin is unprotected. Mm -hmm. It can cause acute damage to skin and eyes, and it's easily absorbed by organic materials. So the moonbeam has a sensor that shuts it off if it detects any movement at all, even a shadow. Okay. It's this week in the CLE. If I'm vulnerable to the coronavirus, should I quickly sign a living will to make sure doctors don't try to keep me alive artificially? Jen Cahoon, our DC reporter, Sabrina Eaton, wrote up a piece yesterday that I don't think we like to think about, but we should. And it's fascinating. It's not just about signing a do not resuscitate order. It's about whether you want all sorts of things done to keep you alive if you are suffering mightily from the coronavirus. Yeah, I have to say this this was a little uncomfortable to read. It, it asked you to consider what, whether you'd want a number of common life-saving medical interventions for the coronavirus for instance, uh, tracheostomy, where they open a hole in your neck through your windpipe and a plastic tube is placed through the hole directly into your windpipe, or or even CPR, where where they use these forceful compressions that can break your ribs, or or putting a plastic tube down your windpipe and attaching it to a ventilator. How did this story come about? Uh, an ICU doctor at University Hospitals named Martin Vanau, I hope I pronounced his name correctly, uh, he says, you know, doctors regularly have to ask family members of coronavirus patients who are too sick to, to ask for themselves or to speak for themselves about whether they want these measures. And it can be really stressful to try to get consent from the family members who who might not agree and the patient hasn't made it clear ahead of time what they would or would not like to, you know, if they want their life saved through some of these measures. So so he wrote a letter uh, that describes these procedures and to try just to try to get people to think about it. 
uh, because if you're not specific ahead of time, they they might sign you up for something, some aggressive measures that you you really don't want. So he's trying to widely circulate this letter, and his dad happens to be an elder law specialist in Columbus, and he's sharing it with his clients and colleagues. Yeah, I, and actually, it came to us by way of Ben Marison, the former editor of the Columbus Dispatch Networks, and Dave Yost's office. What what I thought was um, was helpful in it. I mean, other than reading one procedure after another and how hard it can be on the body and what the odds are of it working. When he finished it, the guy wrote a thing saying, okay, so here goes. And he wrote his own narrative for what he wanted and didn't want as an example that that all of us could use. Right. He he really laid it out there specifically and, and said, you really, you know, have to be as specific as possible. I absolutely don't want this, even if it means I would die. So I don't have one of these. Do any of you have one or do we just avoid thinking about our mortality? And of course, uh, uh, Laura and Chris are of an age where they won't die from the coronavirus while Jane and I are much more vulnerable. Oh. Man, I don't so, know if you're sure about that. <laughs> <laughs> Is it, have, do any of you have a living will? This is Laura Johnston. I, I don't, um, other than, you know, the donor card type thing. Um, it's something I think you start thinking about, you know, the, the will first when you have kids and you're like, oh, you got to figure out who could take care of them or something. Um, I guess it's something I should I should sit down and think about. You don't have one either, Chris? And Jane, nope. you don't have one? No, I don't. I'm sorry. Is this changing any of your minds? I I think I'd like to at least have a discussion with my husband about it. It seems so grim, but, you know, I don't want to be in that situation. And the people who get the coronavirus can go really quickly. When Ellis Marsalis got it, I mean, his son wrote a thing saying they were having a nice chat four days before. So in a matter of four days, he, he got sick and died. So, yeah, it's something, I, I, it's an uncomfortable story, but I uh, appreciate Ben Marison for passing it along so that we could get it out to our readers. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Not sure the best way to close a podcast is talking about end-of-life decisions. It's not uplifting. We should have ended with the booze. Any final thoughts? It's five o'clock somewhere, right? <laughs> It's not too late to end with booze. (laughs) What time do those carryout places open? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks to Jane, Chris, and Laura. This week in the CLE is published weekday mornings. Thank you for spending some time with us. 